Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man trying to recapture the lost magic of youth through the medium of adventure game books. That middle-aged wastrel is me, H.J. Doom, and this episode we are taking a second dive into Caverns of the Snow Witch by Ian Livingstone to see if the second half is as brutal as the first. This being the second part of the adventure, it will probably make more sense if you listen to the first part first, but the structure of the adventure is such that it should still make some sense even if you don't. As a reminder, the first half saw our gallant adventurer limp from one disaster to the next in search of the titular Snow Witch. There was a mammoth, a yeti, a whole host of other snow-themed encounters, and we almost died of exposure early doors. After finding the caverns, we proceeded to get beaten almost to death by a succession of implausibly tough enemies, only to finally succumb to the Snow Witch herself. Because we were only halfway through the adventure at best, I decided I would do a playthrough of the second half as well, and it's that playthrough I'm presenting this episode. Before we dive in, there's a few very quick bits of housekeeping to cover. You can, sadly, or happily, no longer follow me on Twitter because I've finally decided that constantly reading about terrible things and terrible people is incompatible with good mental health. If you want to get in touch, then you can reach me by email, hjdoomretrofun at gmail.com, and I'll try and be better about remembering to check my email. Secondly, and in happier news, I'll be aiming to do a bonus episode this month to start the new year off with a bang, and to thank my generous patrons who have supported me into 2021. So look forward to that before the end of January. I hope everyone listening had as good a holiday period as possible in these trying times, and I very much hope we'll all have a better 2021. Now, let's dive into our second excursion into Caverns of the Snow Witch. So, I was determined that I was going to play through the second half of Caverns of the Snow Witch because I'd made such an abysmal hash of... The first half of Caverns of the Snow, which I really didn't feel like I'd got to experience the full range that the novel had to offer. So I thought I will learn from my mistakes, and I deliberately took a Paragon character, which is a character with skill 12, stamina 24, and luck 12, who I called Aspidistra Clutch. And armed with my provisions and my potion of stamina, I marched off into the snow, made a whole bunch of much better decisions, and died slightly before where I died in the first playthrough. So that was exciting. My second attempt was even worse than my first. However, I was undeterred and I rolled up a character. I say rolled up. I took a character called Scapula Mangrove, skill 12, stamina 24, luck 12, set of provisions and a potion of luck. And this time I managed to make it through to the end. I faced off against the evil Snow Witch. I terrified her with some garlic and I've just hammered a wooden stake through her evil vampiric heart. Now my current stats are skill 13 because I picked up a handy magical amulet, uh, an amulet of courage that added two to my starting skill of 12, which the astute amongst you will think, well, hang on a second, you say 13, shouldn't you have 14? 
I managed to really screw up the fight with the Illusionist and lose a point of skill from that. I've got a stamina of 17 because the Crystal Golem absolutely beats the stuffing out of me. And the only reason I've got 17 stamina is because I've eaten 7 out of my 10 provisions. So we have 3 provisions remaining. Our luck is 12 because we recently drank our potion of luck after some very poor luck rolls that led to the loss of that point of skill. In terms of stuff, I've got a warhammer, I've got a cloak, a flute, which is magic, uh, a sling with two remaining bullets, a gold ring, a bronze ring, and four dragon eggs. So let's dive straight into Scapula Mangrove's continuing adventures in the aftermath of the actual caverns of the Snow Witch, picking up from the very moment that we destroy the supposed final boss. The stake pierces the Snow Witch's heart and her death wail makes you shudder. She starts to decompose and soon all that is left is a pile of dust on the floor. You see a vague shape in the wall of ice at the end of the chamber and decide to investigate. Must admit to a strong sense of trepidation. It really did feel on this playthrough that I hit a natural ending point and given how brutal the first half has been, I am nervous about what uh, Mr Livingstone has in store. So we investigate the wall. You see frozen into the ice wall an ornate trunk open and filled with gold and jewels. You hack away at the ice until you reach the trunk. A golden idol is the first thing you pick up. Suddenly it bursts out of your hands and changes into a golden warrior, a sentinel left to guard the treasure. There is an illustration of the sentinel. Now those of you who listened to the first episode in this two-parter will know that I'm a big fan of the artwork in this book. And that continues here with another lovely woodcut-style illustration. I will say that for a sort of mindless automata, the Sentinel does have a strangely judgmental cast to him, as though he can't quite believe that I fell for that incredibly obvious trap. Uh, however, I am going to have to fight him. He has a skill 9 and a stamina of 9, which should prove very straightforward, I hope. So I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Sentinel. The Sentinel lucked out and managed to deal two points of damage to me along the way, taking my stamina down to 15. The Guardian of the Snow Witch's treasure is dead, and you are free to help yourself to her riches. Although... There is a limit to how much you can carry. You decide to fill your backpack with gold pieces. You count 600 in all. However, for each 50 you take, you will have to remove one item from your backpack and leave it behind. Adjust your equipment list accordingly. Okay, so what can I live without? Well, I've already used the Warhammer and the Cloak, so we can lose those. That lets me carry 100 gold. Um, The Flute... Am I likely to need a magic flute multiple times in an adventure? I don't think so. I'm going to get rid of the flute. Other than that, I can foresee a sling still being useful later on. My gold ring and bronze ring both have magical properties. And the four dragon eggs, I mean, they feel like they ought to be pretty valuable just on their own. I've seen Game of Thrones, so I'm not going to lose any of those. So I've lost three items, which lets me take 150 gold. I've no idea 
what the buying power of 150 gold is. I was offered 50 gold for killing a yeti at the start of the adventure. So that's, I can presumably have three yetis assassinated. But what that means in terms of consumer goods, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, could I buy a house for 150 gold? The yeti was really big and difficult to kill. I feel like that's a significant contract. Um, I don't know, but I'd like to think so. Just as you finish filling your backpack, you hear the sound of running feet coming down the tunnel towards the chamber. You stand up and draw your sword, wondering if you can survive much more hard combat. Two men suddenly appear at the door, a dwarf and an elf. But they do not look as though they are about to attack you. They are smiling broadly and they both try and speak at once, the elf finally taking command. You have killed her. We are free. We will soon be able to take off our obedience collars. Now we wish to repay you, friend, by helping you to escape. You cannot leave the caverns by the way you came because the Snow Witch's followers are waiting for you. The tunnels are alive with goblins. Our fellow elves and dwarves are battling against them. Now to give you time to flee, but we must waste no more time. To your surprise, the elf walks straight towards the cavern wall opposite the door and appears to pass right through it. Another of the Snow Witch's illusions, comments the dwarf. An escape route she never got the chance to use. The trouble is, we've never used it either. The dwarf laughs to himself and walks towards the wall, you following behind. Walking through the illusion, you find yourself in a narrow, torch-lit tunnel, which you walk down in single file. It soon ends at a junction, and you discuss which way to turn. Do you want to go left, or would you rather go right? I always go left, and this is sort of a reset point. So we'll go left, at least until we've been left a few times and it's gone really badly for us, and then we might switch to going right. As you walk along, the elf introduces himself. My name is Red Swift, and uh, he is known as Stubb, he says, pointing to the smiling dwarf. We met here as slaves in the service of the vile Snow Witch. We both now hope to return to our villages. I live in the Moonstone Hills, and Stubb comes from the Stone Bridge. We've been there before. If we manage to escape from these infernal caverns, you are more than welcome to come and stay with us. Stonebridge is on the way to my village in the hills. It's also a long way off. Before Red Swift can continue, Stubb shouts and points to an orb lying on the floor. It is made of glass, and in the torchlight it seems to glow with swirling colours. Leave it, commands Red Swift. We do not need it, and it could be a trap. Do you wish to ignore Red Swift's advice and pick up the orb, or would you rather keep walking? I mean, it's so pretty. I think that's the problem. It's such a pretty-looking orb. I'm going to have to pick it up. When you pick it up, the orb starts to get warmer, and its colours rapidly change and swirl around. Red Swift and Stubb back away, telling you to put it down. Will you keep hold of the orb, place it gently on the floor, or throw it down the tunnel? I now feel as though the orb might be dangerous, so I'm going to do the only sensible thing to do in this kind of situation. Health and safety basics, I'm going to hoy the orb down the tunnel as hard as I can. You hurl the orb as hard as you can down the tunnel. It shatters when it hits the ground. There is a blinding flash of light, followed by a ball of white heat which rushes up the tunnel. The heat is so intense that a scorching blast reaches you before you can move. Roll two dice and reduce your stamina by the total. Oh dear. Okay, so I reduce my stamina by eight. 
leaving me with a stamina of seven. And which means I am still alive. We get to find out just how disapproving Red Swift and Stub are of my messing about. You regain consciousness to find Red Swift and Stub attending to your burns. I don't like to say I told you so, Red Swift says sarcastically. You try to walk, but the pain is too severe. What voice was I doing for Stub? We'll have to rest here, says Stub, looking concerned. But it won't be long before the Snow Witch's goblins find us. There is nothing you can do but lie down again. Test your luck. I am... Lucky. Say that's something. While I'm lying down... I think I might want to eat a couple more provisions. I'll eat two. So, a couple of hot cross buns and a leftover turkey and stuffing sandwich should make me feel considerably more healthy. Time passes slowly, but no goblins appear. The rebel slaves must be winning the Battle of the Caverns. Eventually, you feel fit enough to walk, and with the help of Stub, you manage to hobble down the tunnel. After walking for another five minutes, the tunnel turns sharply right, and right again a few metres further on. You soon arrive at a junction, and after a discussion, you decide to turn left rather than continue straight on. Placed against the left-hand wall of the tunnel, you see a large iron casket with a brass handle in the shape of a serpent. No one volunteers to open the casket, so you decide to draw lots. Roll one die, and depending on what we get, we go to a different paragraph. It is another obvious trap, so I really hope that the random dice don't pick me. So I roll a five. I mean, that feels like a good roll, but who's to say? Red Swift draws the short straw and reaches for the handle. Just as he's about to touch it, he draws his hand away, his elfin intuition telling him there is a trap. See, I'd have said elven intuition rather than elfin, but, you know, different strokes for different folks. He inspects the casket more closely and finds a hidden catch underneath the handle. He presses it with his finger and the lid clicks open. Inside the casket is a pair of grey skin boots. Boots of the Elder Elves, he says with glee. What treasure. Nobody knows how to make these anymore. No matter what surface you're walking on, no one will hear you if you're wearing these boots. Let us draw lots again to decide who shall wear them. I feel like he should have them, really. That's how loot rolls usually work in adventuring parties. But uh, hey, I'm not going to turn down a free pair of boots, assuming I get it. A six. I bet that's me. Bet that's me. Oh, yes. You draw the short straw and cheer at your good fortune. I possibly do a little dance as well. Add one luck point. You kick off your old boots and put on the magical elfin boots. Striding off down the corridor without making the slightest sound, you cheerfully lead the way, and your jealous-looking companions follow. You see, in some ways it's not my feet that I'm worried about, it's, and this is a thing anyone who does podcasts might be able to empathise with, I'm not worried about the noise my feet make, I'm worried about my stomach constantly gurgling. That's what's going to be giving me away in a stealth situation. So, unless I can also find a magical elfin t-shirt, I don't think I'm going to have any more luck than I previously did trying to sneak up on people. Still, on we go. The tunnel soon ends at a T-junction. Stepping into the cross passage, you almost bump into a primitive-looking man, wearing furs and carrying a large stone club. He is a caveman. You draw your sword and tell Red Swift and Stub to head quickly down the right-hand tunnel while you deal with the caveman. 
Caveman has a skill of eight and a stamina of eight. So I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the caveman. He also, like the gold sentinel earlier, got lucky and managed to land one blow on me, taking my stamina down to 13. A pouch on the caveman's belt contains a star-shaped metal disc, which you decide to put in your backpack. Not wishing to meet any more cavemen, you run along the tunnel to catch up with Red Swift and Stubb. The tunnel ends at a door which swings open before you even touch it. You look into a cavern and are surprised to see Red Swift and Stubb kneeling in submission to a horrible robed creature with an octopus-like head. Two of the tentacles are wrapped around your friend's heads and they are trapped by the hypnotic powers of the Brain Slayer. Wow, there is another beautiful illustration of technically not a mind flayer. Um, which has got a really evil vibe to it. It's a really dark, cramped-looking picture. And this huge, huge octopus-style head with an elaborate headdress as well. The Brain Slayer's got its arms raised as though it's having just the best time sucking out dwarf and elf brains. They're really, really good stuff. I actually prefer it to quite a lot of the Mind Flayer art I've seen. It's that good. Are you wearing an amulet of courage? Yes, I am. The Brain Slayer's disgusting tentacles flail frantically as it tries to draw you towards it. Fortunately, the amulet gives you the courage to resist its attempts to hypnotise you. You draw your sword and attack the foul creature. It releases Red Swift and Stubb, who fall to the floor, clutching their heads in agony. Brain Slayer has a skill of 10 and a stamina of 10, making it the toughest creature we've faced so far. I am going to roll some dice. That's a bit more like it. No lucky strikes landed by Mr. Tentacle Face. I just beat him to death with a sword in short order. Let's find out how my compatriots are feeling. As you withdraw your sword from the vile brain slayer, you hear your two companions groaning as they slowly come round. They explain that the brain slayer drew them into the cavern. They were powerless to resist. You examine the chamber and see another door in the opposite wall. There are also two clay pots in a recess in the cavern wall, one red and one grey. Do you want to open the door? Look inside the red pot or look inside the grey pot? Shall look inside the grey pot. I'm not even going to pretend that ignoring the pots was an option. We're just going to go straight on to having a look inside. Lying at the bottom of the grey pot is an old parchment scroll with an unbroken wax seal. Do you wish to break the seal and read the scroll? Well, we've come this far. Let's have a gander. As soon as you begin reading the scroll, the writing starts to fade. Roll two dice. If the total is the same or less than your skill, then presumably a good thing happens. And my skill is 13, so we can dispense with the rolling, I think, under the circumstances. Before the writing fades away, you learn a spell which will protect you against an attack by an air elemental. Add one luck point. You memorise the words Gul Sang Abhi Da... And then decide what to do next. Okay, let's note that down. Gul Sang Abi 
dark because I bet it asks me to remember precisely what the wording is. Uh, let's have a look in the red pot as well. Lying at the bottom of the red pot is a square metal disc which you decide to put in your backpack. Someone's getting that as a Christmas present, I can guarantee. Okay, we will now leave the cave. The door opens into yet another tunnel. You begin to wonder whether you will ever find your way out of the caverns of the Snow Witch. You look at Red Swift and Stubb, but they do not appear to be very concerned. The tunnel soon ends at another door, and you notice a dagger sticking out of the oak panelling. Do you want to pull the dagger out of the door? I feel like we just got given some good swag, apart from the square metal disc someone's getting for Christmas. So I think we might give the dagger a miss. I think if you leave daggers lying about in the open, that is a pretty obvious trap. The door opens into another tunnel which leads off into the distance. Stubb begins to complain about being tired and hungry, so you decide to sit down and rest. If you still have three portions of your provisions, you eat one yourself and give one each to Red Swift and Stubb. After resting for half an hour, you set off again. I assume if you don't have three provisions remaining, you just lie to Red Swift and Stubb and say, oh, I'm really sorry, but yeah, I haven't got any food. Wish I could help you guys, but not much I can do. Anyway, we rest for half an hour and set off, and eventually the tunnel ends at a T-junction. Do you want to go left or right? Well, we went left last time and the time before that, so we're going to go right for variety. The tunnel ends at another door. An old piece of parchment is pinned on it. There is faded writing on the parchment, but you do not understand the language. Knowing that elves speak many languages, you ask Red Swift to try and read it. As he reads, his eyes widen in terror. You ask him what is wrong, but he refuses to reply. He rips the parchment off the door and tears it into tiny pieces. He turns to the door handle and says, Let's get going, there's no time to lose. You and Stubb look at each other and shrug your shoulders, deciding to simply obey the troubled Red Swift. Presumably because we're soft in the head in some way. The door opens into another tunnel. After walking down it for a few metres, you come to a place where water is dripping down continuously from stalactites overhead. Do you have a shield? No. No, I don't. The water looks harmless enough, but you do not relish the thought of being wet as well as cold. But you have no choice. You must walk under the gentle waterfall. As you do, you suddenly notice your clothes are beginning to smoulder. You start to run as you realise it is not water dripping down, but deadly acid. A trap, no doubt devised by the evil Snow Witch to deter runaway servants or slaves. You cry out in pain as the acid burns into your skin. Lose four stamina points, taking me down to nine. There's going to be a slightly awkward conversation with Red Swift and Stubb, where I go, you know that time I said I had no food? Well, it turns out I've got a couple of jacket potatoes and I'm just going to eat them myself. Sorry. By the time all three of you have run through the acid shower, you are very demoralised. Lose one luck point. Okay, take my luck down to 11. I'm going to be even more demoralised once I eat those jacket potatoes. But hey-ho, such is life. That's another four stamina points back, replacing the acid damage. So, uh, yes, we can press on. I must admit, I had really expected both of these guys to be dead well before now. 
The tunnel runs straight on until it opens out into a cavern. The walls are covered with ice, and a large glass globe stands on an ice plinth in the centre. Suddenly, an orc runs into the cavern from the tunnel opposite, and the globe immediately starts to radiate light. The outline of a face takes shape in the globe, one which you recognise. The Snow Witch. Her encased head starts to laugh, and then you hear her speak. In a chilling voice, she says, Although you have killed me, you have not defeated me. My spirit can still defeat you. Watch carefully. The orc, who is standing by the globe, grips the metal collar round his neck and cries out, gasping for breath. His green face bulges as he desperately tries to stop the collar tightening. His efforts are futile, and he soon falls silently to the floor. The Snow Witch's image sneers contemptuously and says, I have no use for servants any longer, and I know the two of you are still wearing my obedience collars. I will enjoy watching you die next, as a forerunner to the agony I have in store for your impudent warrior friend. You refuse to watch Red Swift and Stubb die helplessly. You rack your brain to think of a way to overcome the spirit of the Snow Witch. Will we try to smash the globe with a sword? Fire an iron ball from our sling? Or just run away? I think we'll go for the sling because I kept it because I thought it would be useful. And it feels like now is its time. You quickly load your sling and take aim at the globe. Roll two dice. Is the total less than your skill? Automatically, it is. Let's hear it for items having more than one use. The iron ball flies straight and true. When it hits the Snow Witch's globe, a bolt of white light shoots out from the globe towards you. Test your luck. I am lucky. My luck now reduced to ten. Also, I've just realised that the cover of the edition of Caverns of the Snow Witch that I'm reading dramatises this exact moment of the orc being strangled. So that's nice. Nice that uh, that's paid off. You quickly dive onto the floor and watch the energy bolt pass overhead and slam into the cavern wall behind you. You sit up and see that the Snow Witch's globe is cracked, but she appears to have come to no harm. She watches you, carefully, ready for your next move. As you try and stand up, the Snow Witch concentrates her powers on Red Swift and Stub. Their metal collars tighten, and they both clutch their throats as if gasping for breath. You struggle to your feet, yelling insults at the Snow Witch, mocking her cowardly way of dealing with defenceless slaves. You challenge her to a combat of whatever type she wishes. She laughs, saying, Even though I have beaten you, I enjoy games. I will play. She releases her stranglehold on Red Swift and Stubb and falls silent, obviously devising some fiendish contest. Suddenly, you hear the sound of shuffling footsteps coming from the tunnel opposite. An elf and a dwarf enter the cavern. They look almost identical to Red Swift and Stubb except that their vacant looks and putrid white flesh indicate they are both zombies. The Snow Witch tells you to fight them while she invents a game for you to play. The zombies lumber forward and you are forced to fight the terrible replicas of your friends. Another nice piece of artwork. They look suitably vacant, I have to say. 
Very evocative. Now, the dwarf zombie has a skill of 8 and a stamina of 9, and the elf zombie has a skill of 9 and a stamina also of 9. So let's see how that goes. I am fighting them at the same time, which means I've got to beat both of their attack rolls in order to win. Practically speaking, means I'll be trying to take out the elf zombie first. I'm going to roll some dice. I have successfully defeated the dwarf zombie and the elf zombie, but between them, owing to some legendarily terrible rolling on my part, they've reduced me to three stamina points. So this is going extremely well. A little sort of aperitif fight before the Snow Witch's main horror has almost finished me off and I have no other way of getting my stamina back. So this should be exciting. The Snow Witch looks surprised and displeased by the defeat of her zombies. Suddenly she says, The game we are going to play is called Discs. You will not win, of course, but in the unlikely event that you do, I will give you the chance to escape. I hope you have remembered to bring along your discs. Without them, you lose. She laughs sadistically at the thought of making up the rules on the spur of the moment. Nevertheless, you must play as directed. Do you have any small metal discs? I do. The Snow Witch quickly explains the rules of her game. She tells you to choose a disc and conceal it in your clenched fist. She will call out a shape. A square beats a circle. A circle beats a star and a star beats a square. If you win, you will be given a chance to escape. If you lose, you will die. If you both choose the same shape, you will play again. Your life depends on your next decision. Now you must make your choice. Of course, if you do not possess all three discs, your choice will be limited. So I've got the square and the star metal disc. Um, I will conceal the square disc. The Snow Witch stares at you for a long time before calling out, Circle. You smile and unfold your clenched fist, revealing the square metal disc. You have outwitted her, and she realises the consequences. The globe starts to fill with white smoke, and suddenly it shatters. The image of the Snow Witch disappears. Her shrill cry fills the cavern, but she is defeated. The three of you slap each other's hands in celebration. However, your joy is short-lived as you hear an ominous rumbling. The ground beneath your feet starts to tremble, and huge cracks appear along the ice walls. The roof starts to cave in. Is this the chance to escape that the Snow Witch promised? Test your luck. I am lucky. My luck now reduced to nine. Oh, it really does feel like Ian Livingstone was in a proper bad mood when he wrote this one. By some miracle, you are not hit by the heavy chunks of falling ice. When they finally stop crashing around you, you are surprised to see the welcome sight of blue sky above. The three of you waste no time clambering out of the ice cavern. You find yourself on the side of the mountain. It is not even snowing and everything looks tranquil. As you climb down the mountain, you tell your friends about Big Jim's son and the circumstances that led you to enter the caverns of the Snow Witch. You realise that Big Jim would have presumed you were dead and decided it is not worth chasing after him to collect your reward for killing the Yeti. Without any further ado, you agree to accompany Red Swift and Stubb to Stonebridge. Very impressed by the fact that usually when you get a companion, 
in a fighting fantasy book, they die within moments. But Red Swift and Stubb have hung on through some quite dangerous set pieces and still appear to be with us. I'm not convinced that one of them isn't going to betray me, specifically Red Swift. But uh, yes, we will see how it pans out. Your journey south is long and arduous, but your determination to leave Icefinger Mountains behind you spurs you on. Two days after leaving the ice caverns, you reach the River Cock. Fifty miles upriver lies Fang, the town where Baron Circumvit's notorious death trap dungeon awaits its challenger each year at the Trial of Champions. However, at this time of year, Fang is unlikely to be more interesting than any other river town. You decide against going there and walk downriver to find a bridge or boatman. After walking for half an hour along the bank of the wide, dirty brown river, you see a man asleep aboard a raft moored to the bank. You shout to him and ask him to ferry you across. He tells you to go away. He's too tired to work today. Do you wish to offer him ten gold pieces to make him change his mind? Or would you rather just walk on? I'm going to be one of those terrible rich people who thinks that I can just get people to do whatever I want if I offer them enough money. I hate people like that. However, I am still going to offer him ten gold pieces to make him change his mind. The boatman jumps up and says, For ten gold pieces, we'll ferry you all the way to Fang. Jump aboard. You pay the greedy boatman his money, and he soon ferries you across the river. From the far bank, you set off south, across the pagan plain for Stonebridge. You have not been walking long when you see dust rising in the distance. Red Swift puts his ear to the ground and says, Horses, or centaurs, I can't tell which. If you wish to wait and see who or what is approaching, you can. Or would you rather lie down in the scrub to hide? Three stamina, you'd best believe I'm hiding. Lying between the stunted bushes, you listen to the noise of thundering hooves growing louder. Bending back a branch, you see four centaurs gallop by, each armed with a bow and a quiver of arrows. See? Hiding turned out to be the best plan. You lie quite still until the sound of their hooves fades. When you are certain they are out of sight, you stand up and continue your journey south. Marching quickly across the plain, you do not encounter any evil creatures. To the east you see the forbidding shape of Firetop Mountain reaching into the sky. Does the Warlock still rule the depths of Firetop Mountain? Stubb asks inquisitively. Another nice little callback to previous adventures. I'm liking it. You are just about to reply when, presumably to say, no, but is money still there? Because when I played through, I killed the Warlock, but I didn't manage to actually get his treasure. You are just about to reply when you see someone walking towards you. You draw your sword, but when the person gets closer, you see that it is a little old man carrying a sack over his shoulder. Illustration indicates that he may actually be the oldest man who has ever lived. Even his knuckle bones somehow contrive to look wrinkled. The old man stops in front of you and says, Put that sword away. There's no point in killing me. The only thing I have to offer is information, and that costs money. Pay me two gold pieces, and you won't regret it. Do you want to pay the old man for his information? I mean, I am loaded, so yeah. After putting the coins carefully into a hidden pocket, the old man tells you to be careful of two things if you are travelling south to Stonebridge. Firstly, the nearest waterhole has been poisoned. Really good to know because that is exactly the sort of trap that gets me. Secondly, there are lots of hill trolls gathering to the north of Stonebridge. He bids you good luck and farewell and walks off. 
Stubb urges you to set off as quickly as possible, worried about the possible attack on Stonebridge by the hill trolls. The flatness of the plain becomes monotonous, and you forget to keep a constant lookout. The reflection of the sun on your armour has attracted a group of flying predators that you do not notice circling above you. They are green with membranous wings, and they swoop down on their prey to kill them with their sharp claws. There are four of these birdmen above you, and one of them suddenly lets out a shrill cry and swoops down to attack you. Test your luck. Illustration of the birdmen. I'm just going to say it's good. They look genuinely delighted to be birdmen. That's nice. Always a pleasure to see someone who's comfortable in their own skin. Maybe having a couple of them be bird women would have been a nice touch. But, you know, 1983 series, just straightforwardly aimed at teenage boys. Anyway, test my luck. Just made it. And my luck is now eight. You just managed to draw your sword in time to defend yourself against the diving birdman. It veers away slightly, but turns to attack again. The Birdman has an unbelievable skill of 12 and a stamina of 8, which means I'm going to be very lucky to make it out of this alive, since I can take two hits before death. Oh well, I'm going to roll some dice. I have killed the Birdman by the skin of my teeth. I am now on one solitary point of stamina, but we live to fight another day. The other birdmen, who are circling around above you, fly east after seeing the first birdman killed. Frightened that they might return with a huge flock, you decide to run across the plain. The sun is now overhead and you begin to sweat profusely. You become unbearably thirsty and curse the fact that you have not got a water bottle. You finally reach a waterhole, but you feel like screaming when you see the body of an ogre lying face down in the water. Do you want to drink the water or resist the temptation? Now you see, that's nice. That's a nice clue if you missed the very, very old man. So we won't drink the water. (laughs) Your thirst makes you weary. Lose one stamina point. (laughs) So, dying of thirst next to a poisoned waterhole. That feels like a wonderful metaphor for the state of the world in early 2021. One stamina point and I couldn't even survive that. So the caverns of the Snow Witch claim a third life and I will be back in a few minutes to offer some closing thoughts to this latest deeply ironic failure. I'll speak to you very shortly. Well, the second half pretty much continued in the same vein as the first, didn't it? With a vast array of deadly foes and devious traps all lining up to give us a good kicking. I think dying of thirst next to a poisoned pool of water might actually be both my favourite and my most galling death so far in this series. It's made even worse by the fact that if you make it past the pool, you immediately come across a dead dwarf with a half-full canteen that restores the single lost point of stamina which finished me off. So near, yet so far. Amazingly, there's still quite a bit more material left in the book beyond the point where I met my end. A short distance further on lies the village of Stonebridge, which listeners may remember as a key location in the Forest of Doom. But even that isn't the actual finale, as a shocking revelation 
from Red Swift the Elf sends you off on yet another leg of your adventure, which finishes with a clever tie-in to the very first book, Warlock of Firetop Mountain, which we mentioned in passing during the playthrough. It's a shame we didn't get to cover those parts of the story because they tie in very smartly with the earlier books. We did at least get to see a couple of hints with the passing reference to Fang and Death Trap Dungeon, and I think this is the beginning of Alansia getting truly fleshed out as a setting, and one in which adventures happen in a defined order, so it's both developing setting and history. We discover through play that this adventure takes place after the Warlock of Firetop Mountain, but just before the Forest of Doom, and presumably before Death Trap Dungeon as well. As we approach Stonebridge, we get to tangle with the hill trolls who are massing to assault the village, and it's really nice to see that kind of attention to detail, and it makes the Fighting Fantasy series feel that much more epic in scope. In terms of the quality of the adventure overall, having now played through more of it and also finished it on my own time, I'm more than a little torn. It's a brutally difficult slog in places, and it does some very unfair things. If you try and save your provisions, then you'll end up having to spend five out of ten of them without getting a single stamina point back. On the one hand, that's cruel in an environment filled with meaty combat encounters, but on the other, it is more realistic, I think, to show food as a necessary resource rather than a form of delicious, delicious healing. In theory, you could take the potion of stamina to make sure you had enough health to make it to the end, but in practice, you need to take the potion of luck. You just need the potion of luck because the game book will straight up murder you if you run out of luck, and it's not that generous in doling out extra luck points to balance the constant drain. I think if you make optimum choices, you could probably make it through the book with a starting skill of 10. There's at least three additional points of skill you can pick up, and that will really take the edge off some of the harder combats, but I very much doubt that even a luck of 11 is going to be enough to make a go of this one. There are some great moments in the second half, but it has to be said that the second encounter with the Snow Witch is probably not one of them although there is a bathos to it, which I personally quite like. I enjoy the kind of evil, twisted mind that considers a cheated version of rock-paper-scissors as the ultimate in confrontation escalation. Sadly, I think some of the very best moments in the whole book are actually in the final sequences, which we didn't get to see on either of the runs. The finale is really strong, and it takes you on a journey that's physical and also psychological to an extent. Certainly a book that finishes well. That brings me neatly on to the structure of the book and what I feel is the biggest weakness of Caverns of the Snow Witch. It feels long. Very long. Very, very long. It seems weird to complain about a book being too long, especially one capped at 400 sections, but the problem is the length is married to an unrelentingly brutal difficulty and it always feels that the book is out to get you. When I did finally finish a playthrough, I felt weirdly exhausted, even though I'd learned from my many, many previous mistakes and kind of breezed through the early sections. Now, the way this length is achieved is interesting, or at least it's interesting if you're me. Essentially, Snow Witch is linear, although it hides that fact very effectively. It's like a very long corridor with rooms to one side you can either enter or ignore. 
Each of those rooms contains a discrete encounter and then spits you back out into the corridor to continue your journey. But it's written in such a way that it still feels like a maze on your first playthrough. It's only when you go through a section a second or a third time making different choices that you realise the optimal path has you visiting almost every location available in each segment of the game. That's why, even across two episodes, I only got to show off two-thirds of the book. It's quite a clever way of creating a longer narrative while still preserving meaningful decision-making. But it does mean a big reliance on placing roadblocks where you need specific items to progress, or at least to progress more easily. In a more maze-like gamebook, you would create difficulty by having more encounters or more deadly encounters if the player takes a suboptimal route through the adventure. So if you're playing well, you will actually be skipping reasonably large sections of the game. However, if you're going to make the player see more or less every encounter, then items are your only realistic option for creating difficulty. We see this early on when picking up a spear turns the difficulty down on the encounter with the Yeti. And it's used a lot in Caverns of the Snow Witch. There's fights that can be bypassed with the right items, multiple items that boost skill to take the edge off tougher fights, and of course the usual selection of mandatory items which are required to proceed. These two design elements have an interesting interaction. I was really worried about finding both the garlic and steak which are needed to defeat the Snow Witch, but actually it's extremely easy to explore the parts of the dungeon I missed, and I found them both without any issue once I really started looking. It was the same with some of the other items I needed for my final playthrough. Of course, the flip side is there's not much more irritating than constantly being told you should have some specific item to progress. And if you make less good choices, then you're going to come up against that feeling a lot in Caverns of the Snow Witch. This is one of the game books that leans heavily on the character sheet as a means of tracking which area you visited, rather than doing that tracking within the structure of the game book itself. Effectively, the character sheet is being used as memory, almost like in a video game. The problem with this approach is that it does incentivize more difficult encounter design, and it ties beating those encounters to decisions that you made before meeting that encounter. There's less scope for allowing the player to improvise their way through some of the challenges if everything is reliant on prior experience, and this contributes to the feeling that everything is just quite hard work. It's also just not a nice experience to repeatedly die or take big damage based on things you failed to do earlier. If you want to get into the weeds on this, there's a whole host of psychological literature about how for punishment to feel meaningful and not arbitrary it needs to happen close to the infraction that causes the need for punishment. So a significant temporal disconnect between a decision and the consequence of that decision is notorious for making people unhappy and Snow Witch does that a lot. It's instructive to compare Snow Witch with Citadel of Chaos, which had a real commitment to offering multiple routes through almost every encounter, but achieves that at the cost of making the Citadel feel 
less like an expansive fortress of evil and more like a semi-detached townhouse with a decent-sized garden. Because of the approach it takes, Snow Witch is able to take us up into the mountains, through a meaty-feeling dungeon, out onto the plains, into a dwarf village, off into the hills, and finally up another mountain for good measure. It's got a real sense of scope for good or for ill. I think I've laboured my point on this enough now. There's more I could say on this topic. I could go on for ages about this kind of thing. But in summary, there is a sweet spot between linear and open-ended adventures, and this probably leans too far towards the linear. The final thing I want to highlight is the fact that we spend a decent chunk of this adventure with a couple of friends. This is a novel experience for both fighting fantasy and for my real-world life. There's occasional companions in earlier novels, but this is the first time we've had something almost like an adventuring party. That is a great idea in principle, although very difficult to execute when you're having to account for how multiple NPCs react to each encounter and have those reactions happen in a way that feels organic and doesn't overshadow the player's sense of agency. Small wonder then that usually NPC companions tend to exit stage left with violent suddenness after only a couple of sections. Now, structurally, Caverns of the Snow Witch deals quite well with that aspect, but unfortunately, for me at least, it really suffers in terms of their characterization. Both Stubb and Red Swift are largely void of personality, which feels like a huge missed opportunity, given that they manage to feel mechanically quite sound. They're just not people I wanted to spend time with, and that's a real issue when you spend so much of the adventure together. Now, I think having one of them urge you to always take risks, and the other urge you to always play it safe, that would have been a really straightforward, simple bit of characterization. And I'm a bit baffled that the author didn't take that route because it just feels natural. Missed opportunity for me. Well, I've gone on for more than long enough now. I hope you've enjoyed this extended tour through Caverns of the Snow Witch. If you like my work and you have a few spare pennies, my Patreon is available at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Otherwise, you can really help me out by reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're finding it. You can contact me by email at hjdoomretrofun at gmail.com and I do promise that I'll be better about checking my email, as I said at the start. I'm hoping to be back sooner rather than later with a silly little bonus episode. Then next month we'll be diving into a book I've been looking forward to enormously, The Infamous House of Hell. Until then, be kind, be safe, take care, goodbye.